Let's go ahead and jump into the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 33, right after the book of Ecclesiastes, you have Song of Solomon in there. Um, After the book of Psalms, Isaiah 33, we're going to look at actually just one verse there. And then I'm going to need you to turn to Matthew 5 as well. So we'll look at those in a minute, but you can flip there. Isaiah 33 and Matthew chapter 5. We are talking about the law of God this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about the role of civil government. After that, we're going to talk about Christian civil disobedience, which is a very biblical concept. And then we will finish out the series talking about inheritance, the future. What what do we look for? So that will lead us up past the election. Praise God, there's only a few more weeks left. Isaiah 33. All right. Noah Webster. Yes, that one. That Noah Webster once said, quote, The moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures, listen carefully, ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war, all of those miseries proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. End quote. Noah Webster. John Gresham Machen wrote in 1925... That, quote, a new and more powerful proclamation of God's law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lessons of the law. He went on to say this. So it always is. A low view of the law always brings legalism in religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. Pray that a high view may again prevail. So I want to talk this morning about the law of God as revealed in the scriptures. And I'm convinced and I agree with Machen a hundred years later after he wrote that book that a rediscovery of the book of the law, much like King Josiah in in, uh, 2 Kings 22, a rediscovery of it is one of our greatest needs as a nation. The moral compass is broken, it's shattered, and no one knows where the parts are. There's an epidemic happening even in our churches, generally speaking, and we call it pietism. Pietism is the philosophy that suggests that the only thing, the only thing that you should concern yourself with is the inward spiritual side of things. Don't get wrapped up in all the material stuff. Pietists tend to create a major division between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, right? In the Old Testament, God was angry. He gave the Israelites his oppressive, mean law because he's a big meanie head. And after taking some medication and calming down, Jesus came and revealed God as love because the PR campaign wasn't good. That's generally how people see the Bible. Angry God, happy God. So the results of this thinking produce, in my estimation, anemic Christians who think that the Old Testament just doesn't apply anymore and that all we need to do is just, you know, love each other more, right? Like Jesus. If you've ever said the following phrases, I'm sorry to say that you may have purchased the pietism package and you should definitely get a refund. That was then, this is now. Yeah, but that was Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. The law was was harsh for Israel in the Old Testament. And we're supposed to just love. Just love. 
Jesus, Jesus he, he, he's done away with all of that law religion, all that oppression. We're now, we're now just in the love business. And on and on and on and on we could go. This type of thinking led to its logical conclusion is heretical teaching. It's false teaching. We're not New Testament Christians. We're biblical Christians. Jesus didn't do away with the law. He, as we'll see, established the law of God. And the opposite of law isn't grace. The opposite of law is lawlessness. But before we move forward, I need to bring us up to speed with where we've been so far. And we're going to move through these quickly. We started with this premise. Only the Christian worldview gives coherent meaning to everything in life. If you don't start with Jesus as revealed in scripture, you don't have coherency. Nothing matters. Who cares? So we have to start there. Two. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. When we say that the word of God is the word of God, we mean it. It means something. Three, because everything, everything in life is covenantal, tied to God, right? We approach all things in life from the premise that it, whatever it is, is either with God or against God. Nothing is neutral, No middle ground, no gray area, something, whatever it is, it's a philosophy, a view of life, you name it. If it's not, it's either with God or against God. Jesus said, you're either with me or against me. There's there's no middle ground, there's no neutrality, nothing is neutral. The covenant model in scripture, we see all over it, all over the Bible. this, This established pattern as God deals with people and institutions and nations and you name it. And it starts with the transcendence of God. He is distinct from his creation. He is sovereign from his creation and in his creation. He created everything. He sustains everything. All of the molecules floating around in your Bible. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, that you, I have them. And I don't just fall over. I have breath in my lungs and a heartbeat. He is sovereign. Underneath that is the hierarchy point. Um, man, there's the system of law enforcement. There, there are roles that we play, institutions play in society. There is order, not chaos. There are things that God has established, and they're supposed to be that way. Third point of this model is the ethics, the law, the law, the terms of the, con- the, terms of the covenant. Everything has a law, right? Even those who reject a law, they have a law, and that's what we'll talk about today. The fourth part is the sanctions, the oath. This is, of course, God's judgment, his blessings, which depend on covenant loyalty. When a nation turns its back on God, you get us today. And it's not great. It's bad. Secession, time, where's this thing going, right? Who's in charge? Who do I report to? What are the rules? What happens if I don't obey? And where's it going? Where's this thing called life going? What, what is going on as a nation, as a church, as families, as individuals? So that is the covenant model. Last week, we said the kingdom of God is a covenantal social order that invades all other social orders, bringing them underneath the lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord. That's our declaration. And guess what, world? We mean it. It means something. And so I wanted to establish this biblical view that demonstrates that the kingdom of God is, in fact, a present reality. The kingdom of God is a now thing, not a later thing. Jesus came and said, I brought the kingdom of God. That's what his mission was, to establish God's rule through the hearts of his people, which should infiltrate the world, all areas of life, including the civil realm. So to give you a picture of some of the things I've talked about and why it matters, I want to make this point This 
right here is as a as a big picture thing. This is God's established spheres of government. Usually when someone says to you, what do you think of the government? Immediately you think Washington, D.C., Congress, President, Supreme Court, right? You immediately jump to, well, the government. We mean the federal head of everything in our nation. But that's not the way the Bible uses government. Government is, is, spans everything. It doesn't just start with the federal state. It, it starts with self. So this is his spheres of of government, if you will. We'll we'll call them the social orders of society and culture. So the first two messages of the series really establish this first part, God's sovereignty. That's the first point of the, the covenant model. Last week established the fact that Christ is the mediatorial king. He rules and reigns over all areas, and thus there is no neutrality anywhere in God's kingdom. There's nowhere on the earth that is outside of Christ's kingship and lordship. That's point two of the covenant model, the hierarchy. God is the sovereign. He's established his son as the ruler of the nations. Today I want to establish point three of the model, um, and that's the purpose and plan of the law of God in creation, God's law word in all of creation. So notice the spheres, okay, at the bottom. We have self-government, we have family government, we have church government, and we have state government, state or civil government. So God has established this in his word, uh, in his world especially, and the Bible actually does in fact address each of those realms. The Bible tells you what it looks like to be a man who is, or a woman who is self, has self-control. The fruit of the spirit, right? That's one of the fruits of the spirit, self-control. So I want to notice... I want, I want you to notice that all of these four spheres in life are connected. They are interrelated to some degree. Next week, I'm going to show you how they're related, especially regard civil government. But note that each of them are connected very specifically to God's law word. Notice that everything funnels upward. This is the covenant model perfectly demonstrated. God is the only true sovereign ruler. He's the only true sovereign ruler. He's established his son as the divine warrior king. He is the mediator of all men. Paul makes that clear to young Timothy. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the mediator. Some will bend the knee to him, some won't. Some are in rebellion, some are in obedience. But all of them are under the mediation of, of King Jesus. So Christ, by wielding his power, the the power of his gospel in history, he establishes his rule through the means of his law word. We call this the Bible. So God's word then is what governs everything or should govern everything. So individuals before God absolutely owe their allegiance. They owe their allegiance to Christ. They must submit themselves to his word. A person who doesn't submit his life to Christ's word will perish. Families must submit themselves to God's word as they train up arrows to shoot into the kingdom of darkness. The church must be held captive to the word of God. And this last part, which I'll dive into more deeply next week, the state owes its allegiance and must be held captive to the word of God. See, many of you have been taught that this circle is just kind of separate. And that's not the covenantal model. Nothing's neutral. 
everything owes its allegiance to Christ, including the president. Everything. Everyone. So it's not out here in la-la land. Well, God's not really sovereign over that. And, you know, we don't have anything to do with that. that that's, that's blending politics and religion. We shouldn't do that. No, we should do that because Scripture makes it very clear, as we'll see in Romans 13, which is often misunderstood next week. So civil governments are not neutral. They are obligated, as Noah Webster said in that quote, to implement the law word of God by punishing evildoers according to the word of God. That's Apostle Paul in Romans 13. So each of these spheres has a separate authority, a separate jurisdiction, okay? Yet none of them are neutral, and none of them are allowed to cross the boundaries that Scripture says they have. The state is supposed to punish evil through the sword. The church is not. There are church discipline issues there. Family, same thing. There are spheres, jurisdictions, and authority. None of them are neutral. All of them owe their obedience to Christ through his word. And yet they are distinguishable in the Bible. And so today I want to establish point three. That's God's law word. So go ahead and look at Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. Isaiah 33, 22. The word of the Lord says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Now flip back to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Matthew 5 verse 17. There were some questions about Jesus. Does he line up with Moses? Is he kind of doing his own thing? What is he doing? Well, he says, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here's our idea, big idea today. God's law is a gift of his grace and a way of life given by his mercy. God's law, his, his governorship, his, his rules, if you will, God's law is a gift. It's a gift of his grace and a way of life given by his mercy. Many of you have been taught to see God's law as a curse. It's only a curse if you break it, right? The speed limit only becomes a problem when you get caught, right? I'm not advocating you just go crazy here, the Autobahn on 81, but the law comes down on you when you violate it. But it's a gift, as I'll demonstrate today, of his grace. It's not a curse, and it's a way of life given by his mercy. So Isaiah 33:22 establishes a few things. One, God is the supreme court. He is the judge of all men everywhere. This is the judicial branch of God's sovereignty and of God's kingdom. Two, the Lord is our lawgiver, Isaiah says. He's a, he's a lawgiver. It's his laws that are just because his laws reflect his own character. So this is the legislative branch of God's kingdom. Third, The Lord, Scripture says, 
is our king. Only he is sovereign and only he governs perfectly. This is the executive branch of God's kingdom. Do you notice the trend? Executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government are biblical. So God uses his means not only to judge men, but to manage and govern them according to his word. That's why those spheres have a separation of powers. It's rooted in God's divine power, and he divides those things up accordingly. So that said, how, how is the law of God a gift? How is it a gift of his grace? Proverbs sixteen twenty five says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is in death. But its end is the way to death, which is to say that man likes to come up with schemes apart from God, which ultimately it's a trap, right? It leads and he walks into death. And ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed the covenant law in Genesis 3, man has been, in a sense, displaced. The natural man, scripture says, the person who is not born again, who is not a believer, the natural man is an enemy of God, which means he is at war with God, at enmity with God. The law of God is his peace treaty. This is why we can say the law is a gift of God's grace. God gives us a revelation of his character so that we see how deeply we've offended God. And thus we can see through his law how far away from him we really are. The the law is a mirror that shows us who we really are. And apart from Christ, it's ugly. So God says in Leviticus, and even Peter picks this up in the New Testament, be holy for I am holy, right? Be holy. That's the demand. So our job as ethical beings related to God is to conform fully to the image of God, to be perfect, as Jesus said at the end of Matthew 5, to be holy, to be perfect and righteous. When man rebelled, though, the image of God was twisted. It was contorted. Yet the demand of the law was still there. We must be holy. That's the demand for someone who doesn't love Jesus and is walking away from him. Has, maybe he grew up in church and walked away. He's still, there's a demand on his head. Be holy. And yet we can't do it, right? We can't, we can't do it. We can't be holy. We can't be perfect. We can't always obey God the way he deserves and, and demands, which is why we need Jesus. Because his sacrifice on the cross gives us that holiness as a gift. And now we walk in light of who we really are because of what he has done. But the law of God is as permanent as God is. Jesus makes it clear that not not one jot or tittle, that's the smallest markings of the Hebrew alphabet, not one of those will pass away until the final new heavens and earth, which simply means that those laws, all of his laws that apply to the fallen world, will remain so until the world is remade. You won't need the law of God to tell you in heaven, thou shalt not murder. You will be perfected. You won't need that. So the law is as permanent as God is. So applications of the law change, but the law abides forever because the law is a reflection of God's character. It's an extension of his grace. The law tells us how holy God really is. He is unstained by sin. Doesn't ever have a thought that isn't righteous. But men, men are always under the law. There is no option to not be under the law. Remember, there's, there's no neutrality. There is no, there's no sacred and secular divide. Not in art. Not in, 
not in law. There's only faithful law, and then there is unfaithful law. There is faithful and just equity before the faithful and just God, and then there is unfaithful just and unfaithful um, justice and equity before God. So the law of God is a standard for justice and righteousness, and it is a gift that God gives to man, for by it we can know who God is, and in turn we know who we really are. Which again, apart from Christ, is ugly. David says in Psalm 119.9, one of my favorite verses. Listen up, young people. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. How do you keep pure at college? You guard your heart according to the word of God. So, it's a gift. It's a gift of, of grace. Well, what is the law anyway? Let's define that. And how is it a way of life? Listen, the law of God is is the standard, the ethical standard of God. Again, it reflects his character. He is holy. He is unchangeable. God's law is holy and unchangeable. The law is God's principles, his statutes, his standards, his precepts for how the world is to be governed. So all of creation, including man, is governed by both moral principles and physical principles. And each of these principles are reflection and expression of God and his nature, the holiness of God and the power of God. So our lives are saturated with law. We live in a universe of law, and you, can't, you cannot escape it, you cannot get away from it. One of the laws you are under right now, do you even realize it? You are under a law right now. Do you know what it is? None of you are floating into the air, right? You are under the law of gravity. You are sitting down because the earth is flying thousands of miles per hour around the sun. The earth is sucking you down to the ground. That is the law of God at work in nature. Gravity is the same here as it is in South America, that is a law that you are under. You can't not be under law. You just you are as a creation of God underneath his sovereign lordship. So that, that's the law of God at work in nature. But yet in scripture, we even get more specific, especially as it pertains how, to, how, how, how to men are to govern, how men are to conduct themselves before God, particularly as we think about morality and ethics. So the traditional understanding of the law um, posits basically three, three different types of law in Scripture. They are moral, ceremonial, and civil. If you're following along in the notes, those are in there. Moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law, which coordinate with Christ being prophet, priest, and king. So the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Those first five books really spell out and lay out all of these for us, okay? So we're going to look at each one. Moral, ceremonial, civil. Okay, those are the three types of laws. The moral law is summarily comprehended, to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Ten Commandments. You want a summary of the moral law? Look at the Ten Commandments. The moral law is, in fact, larger than the Ten Commandments, but it's certainly not less than the Ten. So these, these laws show us how to respond to God. We're not to have any any other gods before him. Uh, We aren't to steal things or people. We're not to murder and so on and so forth. So the moral law transcends all peoples, all times, and, and all cultures. Murder in China and the United States 
is the same. Murder is murder, whether you're in China or the U.S., both today and even 200 years ago. It transcends cultures. Murder is murder, period. Now, that's moral law, for example. Another type is the ceremonial law. Christ is our priest. He fulfilled it all for us. But the ceremonial law in the Bible was what we say is abrogated or repealed when Christ came. These were all the holiness laws that, if you're ever tired at night and you read Leviticus to put yourself to sleep, <laughs> that's where you find much of these ceremonies. Um, Christ came, he repealed them. Those were the holiness laws. It gives us a picture of how salvation works. And they point it all to Christ. Um, sacrificial, um, sacrificial oxen, you know, birds, you name it. There were different prescriptions for how Israel was to get right with God. They were to sacrifice animals and do certain things and rituals. Those are gone now that Christ came. All of them pointed to Jesus. They were specifically for old covenant Israel, and they're not binding today. They're not binding on Gentiles today. So the New Testament gives us around four categories to think about, okay? And it shows us th- those ceremonies. One is the priesthood and the sacrificial system, right? That's, that's fulfilled in Christ. He was our perfect high priest, and he was the perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed. So no fret, especially if you're new. We won't sacrifice a goat up here, ever. <laughs> we don't need to. The once and for all sacrifice, Hebrews says, has been made. It's done. The second type is national separation and and privilege. In other words, circumcision laws, food laws, dietary laws, not eating shellfish and all these things. Those are particularly for Israel to set them apart from the other nations. Now, the principles we can apply as far as being holy and separate, um, like not getting drunk out in public. That's a good thing to not do as a Christian. Um, There were also laws about mixture of seeds in a field. There were also laws about mixtures of fabric. Some of you are wearing cotton and polyester. How dare you? Well, you're good to go because that law doesn't apply anymore. That is fulfilled in in Jesus. Third type of law is the Jewish calendar and the Sabbath feast and such. The Sabbath is no longer on the seventh day. The ceremonies attached to that are gone. We worship on the first day because Christ was raised on the first day of the week on a Sunday morning. Um, so the year of Jubilee, all of the feasts were fulfilled in Christ. We are no longer obligated to, to, to do them. The fourth type of law, the ceremonial law, was the land of Israel itself. The land of Israel, this could get me in trouble, was a training ground for when the gospel would be unleashed in the rest of the world. God has just as much concern for the plot of land in the Middle East we call Israel as he does Pakistan and China and other places around the globe. Okay, so that's a different issue. But all of those laws, we don't obey in the sense that we don't have to keep them. We keep them by faith in Christ because Christ is our Passover. You don't have to do a Passover meal. Okay, it doesn't make you any more spiritual to do so. And I would argue um, it can be harmful if taken too far, especially if you ever heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement people who think that that's what we're supposed to do to make us feel more spiritual and that's not biblical. You should avoid that. The third type of law. So we have moral, we have ceremonial. Now we have civil law. The civil code of Israel. Now this is where it gets tricky. Our assumption when we come to the Bible, and I would argue that it's the Bible's assumption itself, is that we are bound to obey everything in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, unless it's repealed by God in the New Testament. Okay? Some people take the opposite approach. They look at the Old Testament and say, well, we're only, we only obey what the New Testament repeats. 
Well, if that's the case, the New Testament says nothing about bestiality. So our premise is everything in Scripture we obey unless there's a change. Unless something's altered or changed a little bit in the New Testament, everything else is still binding. So God doesn't just change things up for the fun of it, but he does make history unfold and history is going somewhere. At any rate, our passage in Matthew 5 makes it clear. Jesus said he did not come to abolish or abrogate the law and the prophets. He came to, to fulfill them, right? To ratify them, to confirm them, to, Charles Spurgeon said, to establish them. To, to put his approval on the law and the prophets. So he didn't come to set aside the law, but he came to establish it. He confirmed its validity by living according to its teachings and teaching it, of course, himself. Which means, when it comes to civil law, we have to pay careful attention to the civil laws of Israel. And the reason is because some of the laws of Israel that were civil were tied to the ceremonies Those are done away with and gone. But some of the civil laws of Israel weren't just for Israel. Some of those civil laws are connected to the moral law of God. Like punishment for murder. So the moral law, remember, transcends all cultures and all times. So any civil laws that God gives as justice, we call them case law, those things are still obligatory. Those things are still binding today. And I'll give you examples of why I come to this conclusion. Paul affirms in Romans 1 and in 1 Timothy 1 that the the laws pertaining to capital crimes are still obligatory today. Okay? Laws of restitution, for example, according to Luke 19, are still in force. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? I always wonder how we were talking, but... As a kid, you sing that song and imagine he's a foot tall. I don't know. But he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. Ah, Some of you grew up in the church, you know that. I'm sorry. After that whole incident goes down, according to the law of God and revealed in Scripture, um, Zacchaeus, I almost forgot his name for a second. Zacchaeus gave money back according to the word of God, according to the law of God. He made restitution. Principles of restitution still apply. The state is called to rule justly according to God's law in places like Romans 13 and even Acts 23. So so these are the laws related to the state that we find affirmed in the New Testament. So the, the traditional three uses of the law, which are biblical, and they were actually developed 500 years ago by the reformers. There are three uses of the law of God, okay? This is in, in the notes too in your app. It's a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sins. So it shows us God and it shows us ourselves. The second use of the law, it's a guide for Christians for, for both good works and right thinking. Right? What, how, does it, how do you practically love your neighbor? I mean, aside from just having gooey feelings. How do you love your neighbor? Well, you don't kill them. Right? You don't take their stuff. I broke my neighbor's shovel last year. I bought him a new one because the principle of restitution has bound my conscience. Even though he had said, no, nah, don't worry about it. But I felt like it, I, I broke it. So... I need to replace it. It's a guide for how we should, how Christians have good works and what they should think. 
So when, when, when God changes our hearts and we become Christians, he writes this law on our hearts, which means that it shows us what the path of holiness actually looks like. What does it practically look like to love God and love neighbor? Because everybody loves to say that. Right? They love to say that. But when you're standing outside of an abortion mill and you're trying to love your neighbor and you're trying to implore these mothers not to murder their children, well, that's not loving. Yes, it is. It's the most loving thing we could do. Third thing, the law of God, the use of the law. It's a sword to restrain evil in society. The law of God demonstrates what societal order looks like as it gives God, as God gives really permission to the state to punish evildoers. That's Romans 13. We'll look again next week. So remember, Jesus is Lord of all. Nothing is neutral. He's established these spheres, and they are to be governed according to his word. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the law, but what about the gospel? Come on. Listen, the law and the gospel establish each other, okay? They aren't the same thing, and yet they work together in God's kingdom, Charles Bridges, who was a a famous, well-spoken Puritan years ago, said, no accurate knowledge of either can be obtained without the other. You don't, that's why Machen said we need a high view of the law of God, not because it brings you to legalism, but because it brings you to God's grace. When you see how perfect and righteous God's standards are and how you can't even get close to that, you realize how bad you need the good news of Christ, don't you? You see, man, I can't even, I can't obey. I need Jesus now. I I need his righteousness. So they establish each other. And, And Samuel Bolton said in 1645, the law of God sends us to the gospel so that we may be justified. The law can't declare you righteous. You can't obey it. It only condemns you because you're not a Christian yet. But once you go to the gospel and God converts your heart and you change, what happens there? Bolton said, the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are now justified. So the truth is the law and the gospel are two sides of the same kingdom coin. Many people are scared of the law of God because they immediately think that it's oppressive and that it's just legalism in and of itself. Listen, it's not legalism to obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ah, you legalist. How do you know what love is if you don't have the law of God? So it's not legalism to obey God. It's legalism to use the law and try to earn God's favor. That was the sin of the Pharisees and the Judaizers, right? We're obeying the law. God will accept us because of our obedience to it. Paul says, no, that's heresy. You'll be damned for that. You can't use the law of God to justify yourself. You can't do it. That's why you need God's grace If you're going to obey that thing the way you're supposed to, you need the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So the Bible says that we're we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. I hear that from people. We're not, we're not, we're not, Paul says we're not under law, we're under grace. He's saying we're not under the condemnation of the law. Because he goes on to actually two verses later in that chapter in Romans to tell you how to obey the law. We're not under the condemnation of the law. Christ was condemned for us. We're not condemned by it anymore. Jesus did it perfectly for us on our behalf. So we're not under the condemnation. We are free from the law's penalty, not its obligation. So these questions from Gary North are worth considering. 
How can Christians preach an effective gospel to sinners without also preaching the law of God? Do we preach about a holy God? How do they know he is holy? Do we preach that his people must be holy? How can they know what holy lives are without the law? Do we tell men that they need to turn from their sins and repent? How can they recognize what a sin is without the law of God? Do we tell them what God hates, that God hates sin? What is, it, what is there to hate without the law? Do, do we wonder why men fail to recognize the affront to God that sin entails? Why should they if we don't preach the binding nature of God's revealed law? Great questions. The law of God and faith in Christ are not at odds. They're not enemies. Paul says in Romans 3.31, Do we over the, overthrow then the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Unfortunately, many Christians wrongly despise the law of God. It's amazing to me. Why is it that many Christians hate and despise the very thing the Holy Spirit has written on their hearts? How could we despise it? I don't understand, but thus the condition of the church. I mean, you can't even read Psalm 1. You might as well tear one, Psalm 119 out of your Bible. David sounds just crazy in that chapter. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day, day and night. I love your law. Your enemies don't, but I love it. I think about it all the time. And on and on he goes. The longest chapter in the Bible is about it. So I'm convinced that we need to recover the law of God in churches. We need the law of God to be preached so that we understand what God demands, especially with regard to the realm of the state. Look at where where we're at in our society. Humanistic status law is running over us, railroading right over us. Redefinition of marriage. 40 years later, we're still killing babies at will. 3,000 every day. Humanist status law is running us over. Marriage just means whatever anymore. And you literally just last week had a presidential candidate say she's concerned for toddlers. Therefore, gun control is a must. While moments later claim that a woman has the constitutional right to kill her baby hours before it's born. You want to talk about a worldview that has zero coherency? You you cannot make a coherent judicial declaration from the bench that makes sense apart from the law of God, period. How do these... How do these black robes make their decision? Courts don't make laws, for one. But here we go. Two people have stood up to resist tyranny. The gal from Kentucky and Judge Moore from from Alabama. That's it. Out of a nation of hundreds of, uh, well, 50 at least, right? Governors of states. Hundreds of other people involved in, in state government. Ah, well, the Supreme Court said it. Whatever. There's no neutrality. The Bible alone is the standard for truth. Did you hear that, Mr. President? Supreme Court justices. The options are simple. God's law or man's law. Theonomy, which means God's law or autonomy. Are we going to follow scripture or are we going to follow men? 
Are we going to have statism or are we going to have biblical republicanism? Are we going to, are we going to follow what this, this crazy train's going into no man's land with zero coherency, hypocritical track the whole way? Or are we going to go with God and what he says and we're going to stand for it? We are ambassadors for King Jesus, church. That's who we are. Which means we must do what ambassadors do. We, we go to the nations on official kingdom business. We, we are calling for God's enemies to surrender to this great king. We advance into Satan's kingdom under the rule and law of God to announce to Satan's forces the terms and the conditions for surrender. We tell people that resistance is futile. We tell them that God is the sovereign ruler and that those who do not repent and turn to him will perish in the waves. Psalm 2 says as much. We ask people to defect from their false hierarchies, their false narratives, their false stories, their false sovereignty structures that all collapse under the weight of the sovereignty of our God. We give people hope by showing them how just our king is and how easy his laws are. The ambassador of a nation seeks to make the other nations jealous of the law of God, just as God promised Israel that if they were remain faithful to it, in Deuteronomy 4, the rest of the nations would be jealous. Wow, what nation, what justice. This is brilliant, and yet we don't believe it. We want to, we want to bind men to the treaty today so they aren't bound up later and thrown into the fire. God's kingdom is received and expanded when we make this treaty known. The terms of the treaty are found in God's perfect law word, which is the light, Scripture says, into our path. You see where you're walking in the darkness of the world by God's word. It shows you how to walk. And this peace treaty is the declaration of war on Satan's pretend kingdom. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's a treaty with individuals. It's a treaty with God and his church. It's for the nations too. And we want just laws in America. We want our abortion to end now. But if we deny the legitimacy of God's law in the realm of civil government, we are in the same move affirming that the validity of some other civil government, some other civil code built on human fallen reason and evolutionary theories and all this other nonsense. Nothing is neutral, remember, not even law. So what about love? Boy, you sound angry this morning. What about love? We're supposed to love. Can we just give everybody a hug today? Paul said in Romans 13 that love is, quote, the fulfilling of the law. Jesus says that the law is summed up in love for God and love for neighbor, right? That's in the Old Testament, Love God, love neighbor. That's literally in the, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. The purpose of the law of God is to teach us to love God and love our neighbor. It isn't a restraint only, it's a blessing. It isn't just a burden, it's not a burden, it's, it's a useful tool. The law is man's tool of dominion in the world. It, it's, it restrains ourselves over other men, it's over all of creation. The law is a light unto our path. Psalm 1 says that, that a man is blessed when he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. David proclaims in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Listen, to love the law is to love God. To love the gospel is to love the law. To love God is to love his word. Only men who love God will be men who love the law. That's why in any discussion about civil magistrates implementing the law of God, They have to be made to love it first. 
And that only happens when God converts someone. Unless this nation repents of her blood guiltiness and her government-sanctioned infanticide, nothing's going to change. We're going to continue to keep kicking the can down the street. Only when men repent and believe the gospel will they then love the law. So we must proclaim them both. The law and the gospel, they go together. We are salt and we are light. Our king rules and reigns with an iron scepter. Alas, that's our goal, that's our mission, to be that salt and that light. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered as your church because the gospel has done tremendous change to us. Not only has it changed us, your law, your law has compelled us compelled us to live differently. So Father, would you permit your spirit to illuminate our minds so that we can be individuals and and families and churches and nations who want to see your law prevail over the fake ones of Satan and the fake ones of humanism. So help us, Holy Spirit, as we pour over your word, trying to govern ourselves and our communities by what honors you. Father, thank you for sending for sending Jesus, your son, and crowning him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And without a doubt, we as a nation need his kindly rule over us desperately. We are being ruled by despots and tyrants, and we know that this is judgment. So we, like Daniel, we confess our sins and the sins of this rebellious nation. And if it pleases you, Lord, would you send us revival so that, so that we may love your word, we may love your law. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.